I'd like to begin this morning with uh, perhaps a big question for us to consider together. What would you say is the most important ministry or activity today for us as a local church? In other words, what is the key thing, thing that turns the engine which leads to the blessing of God and to our fruitfulness and our effectiveness in gospel ministry as a local gathering of God's devoted disciples? Now, I would suspect that a number of people here this morning would be tempted to answer, perhaps without the slightest bit of hesitation, that preaching is the most important work in the church. And admittedly, I'd be a little partial to that answer. The pulpit rightly, I think, occupies a central and often even elevated place, both figuratively and literally in virtually all Protestant churches. Have you noticed that? That the pulpit, where the Word of God is expounded and proclaimed, is often elevated and central in the church, and rightly so. That's one of the great recoveries of the Protestant Reformation. Bible verses abound that remind us of the necessity and the urgency and the importance of faithful gospel proclamation. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Romans 1, 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Later in the book of Ephesians, Paul will add, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ. As a preacher, I'm partial to what Paul says a little elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. He says literally, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Yes, friends, preaching is hugely important. And I'd even argue that preaching is central and fundamental to the health and spiritual vitality of the local church. But according to Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, and according to his household instructions for the spiritual gathering of God's people, preaching doesn't come first. Something else does. Well, perhaps others of you from a more pragmatic bent might suggest that certain discipleship programs, Sunday school or small group, or maybe even outreach events are most important for the local church. I can hear someone saying, after all, Pastor Dan, isn't the command to make disciples the real focus of Jesus' great commission mandate to his followers in Matthew 28? And I would say, you're absolutely right, it is. Isn't instructing our teens in the content of the gospel, or perhaps teaching our children to love and to memorize the Word of God as we do in our Wednesday night Awana program, the most important business for us as a spiritual body? Surely feeding the hungry through our food pantry ministry or serving our community must come first as a church. Well, wrong again. I still love you, but that's wrong. No, for many, it might come as a complete shock and total surprise to learn that according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul here begins a new section in his letter to Timothy, and by extension to all true churches throughout time and space, by giving the following instructions. And again, let me read the text for us. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, first of all. 
then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, Timothy, this is good, and it is pleasing the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and without quarreling. Well, again, for those of you who might be new this morning, we welcome you and are so glad you're with us to our study in the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and also the book of Titus. Let me just say here by way of context that the Apostle Paul has planted young Timothy there in uh, the prominent city of Ephesus in the first century while he himself is moving on to Macedonia to continue preaching the gospel and encouraging the churches. But he deposits Timothy behind for two primary reasons. First, to fight off the wolves, but secondly, to feed God's sheep. That's the work of every pastor and every elder, to fight off false teachers and to feed God's little lambs. Further, the key verses in my estimation behind, really not just 1 Timothy, but all of the pastoral letters is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. That was the text of our very first sermon in this particular series where Paul says again, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. But I am writing these things so that you, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Who are we as a people and what are we supposed to do and perhaps what are we supposed to not do as Christ's church? Really, those are the driving questions behind Paul's letters to Timothy. So understand, friends, that Paul began in chapter 1 by, in, by issuing Timothy with a sobering and solemn charge. Timothy, you must oppose false teaching and correct errant doctrine. That has been the focus really to date in our study. Observe that a faithful shepherd bears a rod for a reason. That is, to fend off the fierce and ravenous wolves that inevitably come near God's flock to nip at them and devour them as God's sheep. Paul predicted that in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. Paul says to Timothy, in a sense, protect the holy herd by heralding sound doctrine. That is Paul's opening command to Timothy. But in chapter 2, Paul turns the page. He begins to instruct Timothy on the priorities of rightly ordered worship in God's spiritual house. Then over the next several chapters, Paul will tackle several key topics that we're going to look at in the weeks to come concerning, for example, who really ought to teach when God's people go to church and who should lead God's household and what kind of character must such people have in order to be entrusted with great leadership in the church. Further, How should the church care for the most vulnerable of their number, that is, widows and orphans? And how are they to handle troublesome accusations against elders in the church? Or the danger of wealth and more, many more topics Paul uh, enumerates in the letter. 
Again, the letter of 1 Timothy, we need to understand, is a priceless and a precious and a purposeful manual for early church ministry. And we would be wise to measure ourselves not, not by the conventional wisdom of our culture, which is focused on pragmatism and numbers, but rather upon the inspired instructions of Holy Scripture, which really is concerned with holiness in God's house. But the one thing that I really want you to notice under the first point this morning in terms of top priority is what Paul says ultimately matters and what we must give ourselves firstly to is what? The priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. It's not preaching as much as we love preaching. It's not programs as much as we love to do ministry together. It is and always has been the ministry of preaching. A prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Just making sure you're listening, right? Hear me now. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. The Apostle Paul carefully connects. This is our thesis for this sermon. Paul carefully connects the purity of God's church and the progress of the gospel through the world to six things. The priority the persistence, the pattern, the purpose, the power, and the posture of prayer. All right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Essentially, the, the experienced Paul tells the inexperienced Timothy, a brand new rookie pastor there in Ephesus, who is then to repeat to the entire church that we are to pray all kinds of prayers at all sorts of times for all manner of people in all kinds of places, if, and granted that is a big if, we want to see God pleased with us, and we want to see people saved through our ministry. Prayer absolutely matters for ministry and for mission. We must not give lip service to prayer. Paul places a premium on prayer in the public life of God's spiritual family. Simply put, prayer, friends, and I've said this for seven years as your pastor, prayer and prayer ultimately is the spiritual fuel for gospel proclamation and for gospel ministry advancement. Without prayer, we're going nowhere fast. As one writer put it, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Charles Haddon Spurgeon who himself attributed his prodigious pastoral success to the faithful prayers of his people, said, Prayer bends the omnipotence of heaven to your desire. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And lastly, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the early 20th century, said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. For Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. Beloved, our passage this morning tells us that a church that puts prayer first truly looks good to God and ultimately is the kind of church that pleases Him. And frankly, the longer I grow, grow older in ministry, the more I want to be a part of a church that rightly prioritizes the ministry of prayer. The famous British missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, many of you have heard His name before once said, The prayer power of the church has never been tried to its full capacity. 
If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, then let us answer God's standing challenge. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I'm convinced that the reason why we experience prayer outages in the church, power outages in the church, is that we have prayer shortages in the church. And so listen, our first major point today, and really the point that every other point hangs upon, is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. If we desire to be an obedient church, a fruitful church, a gospel preaching and gospel living church, then we must place a right premium and a right priority upon prayer. And prayer is first. And it's not only the only thing that we do, but it's first because it's the most foundational thing that we do as God's treasured people. And Paul didn't make this up. In fact, if you remember back to Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, among others, knew that prayer comes first in ministry. Acts 6, verse 4, we read this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I believe we can directly trace the power of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts to the commitment to prayer in the church. You can track the fruitfulness of the early church's gospel witness in seeing thousands upon thousands of souls saved through the gospel to their corporate dependence, their corporate reliance and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble and holy prayer. If the church didn't pray in Acts, firstly, the book of Acts would be a lot shorter, but also they would have been uh, very much less fruitful. Prayer counts. Prayer is crucial. Prayer makes all the difference. And that's why Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, I urge then that you pray. Out of all of our activities, friends, as a church, out of all of our ministries, there is nothing more important than prayer. And I mean it. But now secondly, understand that Connected to the priority is really the perseverance, the endurability, the stick to if you will, of prayer. Paul says we are to pray firstly, but we are to also pray repeatedly, even steadfastly. As Jim Elliott notably said once, the saint who advances on his knees never retreats. Look again at the text of 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Note that verb there, for all people. Again, who is to pray? It's not just the pastors, it's the entire church. But also, how are we to pray? We are to pray devotedly, persistently, and steadfastly. I take that from the very fact that the verb here, be made, at the uh, end of verse 1, is in the present tense. That is to say, it indicates an action with an ongoing, continual effect or quality. In other words, the mission and the ministry of the church requires us to develop what some of us uh, really lack at times, prayer stamina. Prayer stamina. Prayer can't be just a one-off or when you feel like praying. 
Rather, we are to prioritize prayer, and then we are to continually give ourselves to it again and again and again. It's not to be sporadic, it is to be strategic, and it is to be sustained. I wonder, is our church prayer conditioned? Have you ever driven by a church and you've seen that on their sign? Our church is prayer conditioned. It's a good summertime. Uh, Maybe I'll, I'll put that on the sign out front this summer. Actually, people are saying, please, Dan, don't do that. We pray. There's no doubt that we pray as a church. I'm very proud of the fact of how we pray, but have we come to really be known in our community, known in heaven itself as a praying church? Does God see us as a praying people? Do we love to come together and pray? Do we persevere in prayer, and are we known to God and others as a praying church? We have a reputation. Ask people, what do you think about Trinity down the street? And they'll tell you something. I want to be known as a praying church. A praying church. C.S. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, The condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. The prayer meeting is a graceometer. And from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Listen, Paul's numerous letters are filled with repeated admonitions towards persistence and perseverance in prayer. Consider, for example, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Paul says here, in the context of spiritual warfare, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, Paul says something strikingly similar in Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4. He says there, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Even Paul knew he was impotent apart from prayer. And so he calls upon the church to pray. And of course, one of Paul's most well-known and famous statements about our constancy in prayer comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and also verse 25, where he says simply, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then he says in verse 25, brothers, pray for us, pray for us. The fact is that a church that truly prioritizes prayer will be the church that prevails and perseveres in holy prayer. This will be seen through our commitment to regularly scheduled times of private and corporate prayer. It will be in the bulletin. We will be committed to times of prayer, even as a denomination. And I sit on our denomination's church health committee. We have indicated that one of ten key distinctives of a healthy church is that you are committed to prayer. Uh, distinctive number nine in a little pamphlet that we have says, a healthy church encourages prayer from individuals and provides opportunities for corporate prayer. And I'm pleased to tell you, if you don't know it, we have many opportunities for you to come together to pray. Further, the core commitment will be central to our strategy of bringing the gospel 
not only to Blandon, but also to the ends of the earth. And this will likely involve spontaneous times as well of personal and public prayer. Again, the point is the kind of church that not only that, that prioritizes prayer, not only does what God says, it depends on God to do what God demands. We need God for prayer. There's a third aspect in Paul's mind behind prayer found in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that's what I want to call this morning the pattern, or perhaps the plethora, or even the panorama. I was really on a P-roll this week of prayer. Paul unpacks for us the priority of prayer by urging the saints to offer, notice again, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people at all kinds of places. Notice again verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for, notice, all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, grab any study Bible that you like, or perhaps any good commentary on the book of 1 Timothy, and they will all point out that there are seven different Greek words for prayer in the New Testament, and that in this verse, Paul uses more than half of them. He uses four of them. The first place is translated in our ESV Bibles, supplications. This is the Greek term, desis. It means simply an entreaty, a petition. This word conveys the idea of presenting a specific need to God for the sake of seeing that need met. That's what it means to supplicate or to make supplication. Great contemporary uh, preacher and pastor H.B. Charles notes that the word translated supplications emphasizes the utter dependence of of the one praying or asking for something to be done. When was the last? uh, A good word is desperation. God, we are desperate for you to do something here. So that's supplications. Then Paul uses a different term, prosuke. That's the the word it's translated prayers. It's actually the the most common word in the New Testament for prayer, used well over 30 times. This word includes presenting needs, but it's broader than that. It actually includes the idea of offering praises to God as well. And so the idea here includes both communion, a sense of drawing near God, but also a sense of talking to God or communication, both communion and communication in this sense of prayer. The third term, intercessions, is a different Greek word. It it means petitions on behalf of, of another person, submitting a formal request to another for a purpose. It's the idea of pleading on behalf of other people. We do that quite often, particularly in our Wednesday night prayer meeting, of interceding for needs in the church and in our community. It's the same word, in fact, and interestingly so, that's used in Hebrews 7, verse 25, to speak of Jesus' high priestly intercession for you and for me. The writer of Hebrews says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The last word, thanksgivings, is a familiar term, eucharista. It it means simply an expression of gratitude. It it means what it says, to give thanks or thanksgiving, to give thanks to God. Philippians 4 verse 6 is a good word, a good verse here. Do nothing, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That verse has them all wrapped up together, doesn't it? Now look, rather than getting caught up in the weeds 
about the nuances between these various Greek terms, I think Paul is saying something quite simple to us here. He's simply encouraging the church to practice the priority of prayer by offering up all kinds of prayer, a plethora of prayer, all different sorts of prayer. Pastor Eugene Peterson paraphrases helpfully, saying the first thing, Paul writes in a sense, the first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone that you know. I think that's a good summary of it. We are to pray in a variety of ways, and we are to pray for a variety of reasons. We are to pray for a variety of people, and we are to pray for a variety of purposes. And that's actually the flip side of this same point, this plethora or pattern of prayer, praying with all kinds of prayer, but also notice praying for all kinds of people. Let me ask you a question. Who do you pray for mostly? Do you pray for yourself? I think if we're honest, most of us would probably say we pray maybe more disproportionately for ourselves than for others. Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for your church? Well, notice that Paul admonishes us to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. The Greek text here literally says, pray for all men. Now that, of course, what the thrust of what Paul means here is that as God's spiritual family, it's not just men we are to pray for, we are to pray for all kinds of people, people that we like and people that we don't like, people that we agree with and people that we sharply disagree with. We are to pray for the church, and we are to pray for our community. We are to pray for those we see around us, and we are to pray for those who we vote for. We are to pray for the lost and for those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham once said, you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the very same time. By the way, Who was the king when Paul wrote 1 Timothy? The answer is the vile Nero was king when Paul wrote these words. And notice that Paul says that the church was to pray for him. Additionally, who gave the order for Paul to be executed not long after these final letters were written? Right again, the answer is Nero. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Paul prayed for people to be saved. In fact, in Romans 10 verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for his fellow countrymen is that they may be saved. Again, we are to pray all kinds of prayer at all sorts of time for all kinds of people. Why? Because God commands it, firstly, and because God delights in it when we pray, and because God actually works powerfully when we pray. We are to pray for friends, and we are to pray for family. We are to pray for people who we see driving down the street, especially for Pastor Jerry, because Lord knows he needs it. We are to pray for neighbors. We are to pray for coworkers. Can't even get through a funeral these days without you telling on yourself again. We are to pray for council members. We are to pray for city leaders and state representatives and for nationally elected leaders. Again, maybe you don't know this, but this past Thursday was the 71st 
National Day of Prayer, 71st. And for those of us who gathered here Wednesday night, the night before, we prayed for President Joe Biden. We prayed for Vice President Kamala Harris. We prayed for our state senators and our national representatives. Why? Not because we agree with them. In fact, it's very rarely that I find myself agreeing with any politician these days. It's not because of our agreement or our alignment because of God's commandment that we pray for those over us in authority. And they obviously need it, don't they? Look at the condition of our country. There's another important reason right here why this text says we are called to pray for those in positions of responsibility and authority in our culture. Because prayer is the primary way that we engage politically. Prayer is. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. This fourth aspect brings us to the, the real purpose behind our praying. Notice verses 1 and 2 once again. Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, I call this the spit method of prayer. I'm not quite sure why that never took off. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. You might prefer the Acts acrostic. I prefer the spit method of praying. Be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a, notice, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice those four terms. We aren't supposed to pray simply for our life to be easier. Isn't that quite honestly why we so often pray? Lord, help us out. Cut us a break. We need your help. We aren't to pray selfishly in order for the stock market to rise, in order for our wealth to skyrocket. That's not why we are called to pray. Instead, Paul gives us these four words that describe really why we are to pray. They are the purpose behind our prayers. And they're summed up in a simple statement. Listen carefully. We are to pray for certain conditions to be met that a harvest of righteousness is brought in. A harvest of souls are brought in. In other words, the goal of our praying ought to be for an evangelistically conducive environment. That ought to be what we're praying for. In other words, we should pray for our elected leaders in such a way that they actually come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We should pray that God would lead them in such a way that they uh, govern and rule or uh, direct the affairs of our country in order that we might be free people, free to raise our kids and to do our work and to worship as a people and to proclaim God's grace to a dying and desperate world. Notice these four words, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified, and ask yourself, does that describe my life? The first term, peaceful, comes from a Greek word that means tranquil or quiet. Chuck Swindoll says it's a sort of tranquility arising from without. The second word, quiet, is a different word. It also means peaceful or tranquil, but it it has a different uh, orientation. Swindoll says there, it's a sort of tranquility arising from within. I, I think what Paul is getting at here is we're to pray in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see peaceful lives, both when we're gathered, that is quiet, 
And when we're not gathered, when we're scattered, that is peaceful. We are to pray for the witness of the church to be respectable. The other two terms, godly and dignified, I think have a different orientation. That is, Eusebia, godly, having devotion or godliness before God. We are to look that way. And dignified is a different word, having dignity and honor or seriousness, how we look before others. So again, we pray for the purpose that when we are scattered and when we are gathered, both before God and before others, we have holy and dignified and peaceful lives. That's why we are to pray. Because guess what we do when we don't pray? We agitate. We fight. We bicker. We get loud. We get clamorous. That's why we need to pray. To me, one of the best examples of this kind of prayer life comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Oh, how I love Daniel. You'll remember the sermon series from a number of years ago. We talked about devoted Daniel in one place and how he was undeterred in his personal prayer life even when the king banned prayer. You remember that scene? Daniel chapter 6 leading to the famous Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... He went to his house where he had windows, his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. He didn't change course. He kept praying. I want to be that kind of Daniel. As believers in Christ, we are to pray firstly and we are to pray repeatedly and we are to pray diversely. Because prayer sets the condition both inside us and outside us for the glory of Almighty God. Prayer makes the difference both in the culture and in the church, both before God and before others, such that we are enabled by God to do both to know Him and to make His love known through the gospel. Well, that brings us to the final two, and these we're going to cover quite quickly here towards the end. And the fifth point I I list as the power or perhaps the the ultimate passion of praying in the church. Look at verses 3 through 7 in particular. Paul says to Timothy, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now again, for the sake of time, I'm going to split this sermon up really into two parts. There's a whole sermon here in verses 3 through 7. I want to come back in two weeks. We're going to go on to verse 9 and following next Sunday for Mother's Day. Actually, in an interesting sort of way, you'll have to come back for that one. But uh, in verse 4, there's, there's multiple sermons that could be preached on verse 4 alone. What does it mean that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? There's enough in that verse for several sermons. But the point I want, want to make today is that Paul is connecting something important. The priority, the persistence, the pattern, and the purpose of the church's public prayer life with one glorious eternal good. And what is it? The power of the gospel to save the lost. That's what he's connecting here. Why are we to prioritize prayer in the church? 
so that people come to know the head of the church. They come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. The church that prays looks good to God, and the church that prays lives on mission with God. We proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the lost. Let me ask you, do you have someone that you are praying for in terms of their salvation? Just one. Some of us have many people we are praying for that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is, Paul says, good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. One author has noted that the progress of the gospel in the world is dependent on the prayers of God's people in the church. That is Paul's point here. While salvation ultimately belongs to God, we don't save, he alone does. In a mysterious sort of way, even our prayers work with God to accomplish his purposes. God uses our prayers to save his people. That's what Paul is saying to us. That same author cited a a very famous statement by the Puritan Richard Richard Baxter, the Reformed pastor, the author of that book. And listen to this. it's, It's gripping, a gripping quotation. Baxter writes, Let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have your hearts of rock, have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace." Do you live close by them, or do you meet them in the streets, or work with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their salvation and their souls? If their houses were on fire, would you not run and help them? Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? Close quote. We give you evangelism and prayer in two steps. Talk to God about people. And talk to people about God. That's evangelism and prayer. The final and sixth point uh, that I believe Paul, I think, rightly includes, and I'm including it in this particular sermon. We could have addressed it in a separate message as well. comes from verse 8, and it involves what I'm calling the posture of prayer in the public life of the church. Notice again the verse. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now that might strike some of us a bit odd. Beloved, I don't believe that Paul is implying that public prayer is for men only. That's not his point. Even in the gathered church, the sisters do not just have to sit there and listen to the men preach. You are to pray as well, ladies. The presence of women in the pattern of public praying in the book of Acts or uh, Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, among other places, should prevent us from such a misunderstanding on Paul's words here. But he is saying something. Paul intends to call men up. To say who should lead spiritually in the church. Men, don't let the women outshine you. Don't sit there silently And let the prayer meeting be carried by the sisters of the church. Show up, stand up, and pray, men. 
I think there was some contextual issues happening there in Ephesus, but there is an abiding principle as well. I'm going to circle back and say more about this next Sunday in terms of the interplay and interactions between men and women in the, uh, in the rightly ordered and gathered church. I think that's part of what Paul is beginning to get at here, and it's not easy to talk about. It's not easy to preach, but it is something that's good for our souls and for our holiness as a church. But I want to say very clearly what Paul says here is, I desire the men to set the pace in public prayer. That's what Paul is saying. Take responsibility, men, to set a humble, holy example by lifting holy hands in prayer. And you have no idea living in the 21st century in America how countercultural that statement really was. Paul's emphasis is not on the word hands, really a physical posture. It's on the word holy, a spiritual posture. His concern is the heart posture of those who are praying, not merely the physical posture in the church. Well, again, as we close, Eugene Peterson said, since prayer is at the bottom of all of this, what I want mostly is for men to pray, not shaking angry fists at enemies, but rather raising holy hands before his God. Martin Luther, the famous 16th century German monk and reformer who was well known for his theology, but also for his powerful preaching, himself said, church, let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray in the church. Let us pray with the church and let us pray for the church. Finally, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is nothing that tells the truth about us as a Christian people. So much so is our prayer life. That's why I'm so compelled to Preach God's word here about the priority of prayer for us as his people. May God be pleased. May God be pleased to raise up a fresh generation of prayer warriors in this place for his glory. Let's bow in prayer. Again, O gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth and your word is good. Father, we ask that you would take the truth that has been uh, imparted to us this morning, and help us to hold on to it. Help us, Lord, to understand and grapple with the areas of our lives individually or perhaps even corporately that are out of balance, out of sync even, with what we have heard. Lord, help us to either rightly preserve or perhaps rightly regain the priority of prayer in this place. For Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Oh, Lord, we thank you. And and as, Lord, we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. You will pour out your blessing from heaven. You will use us in ways that, be, that defy explanation, and we will give you the glory. For you alone are God, and you are so good. We praise and thank you in the name and matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.